Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Levi Anderson, and I am the pastor of evangelism and discipleship here at the church. And I am relatively new on the scene, as Steve mentioned. Uh, my wife, Charity, and I have only been here for a few months. Uh, before that, we were living in Dallas for uh, my schooling. Uh, but we are uh, glad to be back in the Midwest. My wife's actually from Iowa. She grew up in Council Bluffs, and me from... Uh, central Nebraska. So we're really happy to be in the Midwest, and we really thank you for your welcome these last few months. Uh, now, one thing we did really like about living in Dallas was actually the food. Uh, that city has some amazing restaurants, and one of my favorite spots in the city uh, was this restaurant called Babe's Chicken Dinner House. Now, with a name like that in the South, you know this place is going to be good. And it did not disappoint. It had fried chicken, mashed potatoes, biscuits, corn, the whole works. I loved it. In fact, we had a last supper of sorts before we moved with family and friends. And I chose Babe's Chicken Dinner House. I love that place. Now, besides the food, one of the reasons I really loved this restaurant was actually the way they served the food. They served everything family style at Babe's. Uh, So, of course, everyone could still order, but there was only a few options. And so everything would come on these communal serving dishes. And for some reason, these kind of restaurants have always been really fun to me. I've I've always enjoyed enjoyed restaurants that are family style. It's, It's almost more of a together experience. Not just my meal, but it's our meal. Well, this morning we're going to spend some time in the Word and study uh, the Scriptures together. But the truths that we're going to be looking at are going to be specifically served to us family style. The author of the text is going to distinctively present these truths to us in a way for, of course, each of us as individuals to think through, but also all of us together to consider And so our point today is going to be coming through that lens. So this morning we're going to see that the truth of Jesus Christ invites us into a family of faith, of hope, and of love. Christ invites us, all of us, into a family of faith, of hope, and of love. Where am I getting this? Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, specifically verses 19 through 25. And as you turn to Hebrews 10, 19 through 25, uh, I'll set the stage for us a little bit. You see, the book of Hebrews is a really fascinating book. Uh, For one reason is we simply don't know the human author. Uh, For centuries, people have been debating and suggesting names, but really with, with no consensus. Now, I don't want to, I don't want you to, that to weird you out. In fact, I want to encourage you, for as long as people have been debating this issue, this issue, there's been consensus that this is, in fact, God's Word. Having all the marks of an, an inspired letter that does belong in our Bible. And so as you read the whole book, you will see that it is, it is a letter, maybe a sermon, but, but one of those that is written to a specific group of people who find themselves in a very specific context. As you read the book as a whole, you'll notice that the audience must be overwhelmingly Jewish. Uh, There's something like 30 Old Testament quotes in this this letter. And then there's further hints that uh, this Jewish audience is made up primarily of relatively new believers. And so in the book of Hebrews, you have this group of baby Christians who find themselves in a Jewish context. And more than that, they are feeling some pressure 
they're encountering some increased persecution. But the text really specifically notes in verse or in chapter 12 that it hasn't yet gotten to the point of, of physical persecution. But these folks are facing serious social and cultural pressure uh, to go back to the old covenant laws. That which would have been the total cultural norm. And so this is actually one of the reasons I really love this book. As strange as it might sound, I think that context is actually very relevant to where we find ourselves here as the church in America. I know we're not in a Jewish context, uh, but where we find ourselves right now in this point in history, uh, living where we do, uh, there's really not all that much physical persecution. There's some, but that's really not a huge emphasis. We do, though, face increasing social and cultural pressures to conform to a normal religious experience. And so I think because of that, there is a lot in the book of Hebrews for us today. Now, up to this point in the book, up to chapter 10, uh, the author has given really a, a masterful argument of one very simple point. That Jesus is better. And he comes at it from all sorts of angles. He's better than Moses. In fact, he's better than all the prophets. He's better than the temple system. In fact, he's better than the whole old covenant. Uh, Jesus is better than all of it. And the cry of this letter is that its readers stick with Jesus. They stay in his family, even when the pressure is on. So our specific text, verses 19 through 25, I think it's really cool. Because this serves as a transition section of the book. Up to this point in Hebrews, it's been a lot of theology. A lot of truth about Christ. And now... We're going to get a summary of all of that in our first few verses, and then they'll transition into, what do we do with that truth? If Jesus is better, how do we respond to that? And in the Greek, it's one sentence, so we get the whole package in one Greek sentence. So let's take a look at our first few verses, verses 19 through 21, this summary of the Jesus is better argument. The text says, therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter in the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which is inaugurated us, inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, you see, our very first word, therefore, is a huge clue that this is a transitional section. I was always I grew up taught to ask the question when you see a therefore, what is it there for? Right. Well, here it is there to clearly indicate we're, we're switching, we're transitioning in the letter into the following application, our response to Jesus. So these verses that I just read, they give us a summary of the book's argument, focusing on two key realities. That we have confidence because of our great priest. That's the truth of Jesus in the new covenant boiled down to two key points. So he tells us we have confidence. Now, I think we all know people who who don't lack confidence, okay? But we're not talking about a personality thing here, a temperament. Really, what we're talking about is, spiritually speaking, in relation to God, that there is courage. There's boldness. And that's a pretty strong claim. But the text is specifically pointing, it has nothing to do with us or, or our personality. In fact, it's in spite of us that this confidence is by the blood of Jesus himself. 
And verse 19 explicitly says that, that it is our confidence is by his blood. That is the way in which we have access. Now, that phrase, the blood of Jesus, uh, is if you've been around church, it's probably familiar. We talk about it. We sing about it. But it's actually fairly graphic. Uh, I don't talk about blood a lot outside of this context. Uh, but it's a powerful truth that underlines what we're getting at. It's a picture of the perfect sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. The God-man who died and rose again in our place. This image of his work. And so this perfect sacrificial death opens up a new way for us to God. And verse 20 says it's, it's new, it's recent, it's fresh. But maybe even more importantly, it's, it's living. See again, Jesus died for us, but he also rose again. He's, he's living. Now, take a moment again to remind ourselves of this con, of the context. To try to imagine life in ancient Israel under the old covenant, under the sacrificial system. You see, you would, you would see millions of animals sacrificed every year. And every year you would go to the temple and, and repeat that process. It's this system that would constantly remind you that your sin requires death. But the death of that goat, that sheep, is not enough. That's the background that not only points to, but now contrasts with this new and living way that we have access to God. And it's through the risen Christ. So again, we're talking about direct, unprecedented access to God. And verse 20 says, it's through the veil. That's the separation that was there via Jesus. Again, remember, during the times of the temple, it's not like anyone just off the street could waltz on in. In fact, the temple specifically designed to communicate that, that there's restrictions here. And when we're talking about the holiest of places in the temple, that was one guy who got to go in once a year. But at this point in history, after Christ has completed his work, that's all changed. And in fact, that's why Jesus is better. This confident access. Now, verse 21, or, yeah, verse 21 adds one more summary idea to the superiority of Jesus. And that is that he is a great a priest. Again, we're talking about a Jewish context. Priests are associated with access to God. They're the ones who are going in the temple, doing the temple work. But at this point in history, after Christ, that system is gone. Although God's not left us without a priest. And Hebrews makes a really big deal about Christ being a priest, but a different kind of priest. While the others were temporary, inherently temporary, Christ is a priest forever. And he specifically is a priest, we see the text says, over the house of God. You see, Christ is a priest over the entirety of God's people. It's not just an Old Testament thing or an Israel thing. He's a priest for all of us. As they looked forward in anticipation of his work, we now look back as it's completed. Yes, there's this distinction between Israel and the church, but God, through Christ, has invited us in because it's his family. It's his house. So the key is that Jesus is better than all of these Old Testament shadows that pointed towards him. Our great priest who gives us confident access. And it's in that way, in these two verses, that the author is summarizing his argument of ten chapters boiled down to two verses. Confident 
access. Now, as I mentioned earlier, me and my wife, we did live in Dallas for the last four years. And, and one thing, strangely enough, that really surprised me about living in Dallas was how much I learned about JFK. I really didn't anticipate that. Moving there, I, I kind of expected to learn about Texas and uh, barbecue and, and even Southern Baptist. But JFK really was a surprise to me. Well, it turns out that he died just about a mile from where we lived, and there was all sorts of monuments and museums, and, and the 50th anniversary happened while we were living there. And so there was just a lot of exposure. And so we saw all kinds of artifacts and, and uh, memorials and all those kind of things. But one picture from the life of JK, JFK stands out uh, as most striking to me. And it's this iconic photo of JFK sitting at his desk in the Oval Office. Really, a power of, uh, an image of prestige, power, importance, exclusivity even. But in this photo, uh, at his feet sits a little boy, his son. Now that image is burned into my mind. Because I could devote my entire life to trying to get that sort of access to the president. The most probable thing that would happen, I'd get an autograph and maybe a handshake. A few, a select few get to be on staff, but there's not too many people who can waltz into the Oval Office and sit down at the feet of the president. You see, that's some serious confidence in your access, and it's based on a relationship with the authority. And through Jesus, we too have real access to God. As the text says, we have confidence to enter the holy place. Uh, And not because we've done the right thing or we look a certain way, but it says, by the blood of Jesus. So these verses that we just read give us a glimpse into the rich theology that's really behind the simple gospel that we experience. And the book of Hebrews up to this point, as summarized in these these few verses, really explain the truths of Jesus' person and work uh, in what we would call the new covenant. These are gospel realities. What I call just some good old gospel truth. Now as I read those verses, 19 through 21, I hope you had a sense that the sentence wasn't totally done. Right? It says, therefore, since Jesus is better, what? Answering what the therefore is, is therefore. Well, that's the next verses we're going to look at, our next section. Actually giving us what our response is to be to the truth of Christ. The so what? Of this truth. So again, this text is a transition from truth to application. Our position to our practice. Our affirmation to our actions. And again, it's so cool because in the Greek it's in one sentence. We have the whole package. And the author is going to lay out our response very simply in the form of three driving commands. In fact, if you were reading this in Greek, these three commands would pop off the page. In our English Bibles, they do in a very similar way. If you look at verses 22, 23, and 24, you see one little phrase repeated three times. Let us. Three times. Let us. Uh, so really, calling them commands is almost, almost gives the wrong impression. You see, what the author is doing here is, in a sense, giving invitations that invite everyone he's speaking to, including himself. These commands are presented in such a way that all of us, together as brothers and sisters, as a family, should respond to Christ. 
What does this family look like? What do we do with these truths of Jesus? Well, let's look at our first lettuce in verse 22. He says, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So application number one to the truth of Jesus Christ is let us draw near. You see, if you were reading this letter as a whole, that phrase would would send off an alarm in your mind. You read that in chapter four. In chapter seven, you'll see it again in chapter 11. Because the temptation for this, these readers, this original audience, to, was to succumb to this social pressure and to move away from God, away from his people. But the pleading here is that we draw nearer to him. And here we get a really full description of what that means. He says you draw near with a sincere heart. That means it's genuine. This is authentic. Uh, you draw near with full assurance of faith. Another way to say that would be with the assurance that faith gives. We we talked about confident access. We draw near with assurance through faith. And then finally we draw near with clean hearts and, and, and washed bodies. Remember, this Jewish audience would have a strong understanding of these Old Testament uh, purity rituals and laws. And the emphasis here is, yes, yes, seek purity, but specifically... Internal purity. I think the idea is is there's an invitation to come on in the family. And to do so specifically through faith. That's a bit of a radical idea. I mean, you don't have to go through a checklist or a procedure to be clean. In fact, the cleansing here is stated in such a way that this has already been accomplished. And the effects are still intact. Jesus did the work allowing us to draw near through faith. And the irony is that under the Old Testament, in in the temple system, there were these powerful physical representations of the separation between us and God. Again, it's part of how the temple was even designed. That it was very clear that there is a distance between the holiness of God and and my sin problem. This this physical distance. Yet the invitation here to draw near is is not a, a... A physical act. You see, those reading this letter 2,000 years ago as they sat there reading, and us here today as we sit here listening, can draw near to God through faith. It's this disposition of our heart that through faith we can experience His nearness. You see, in Jesus, there's no need for any guilt or fear to keep us from Almighty God. We can confidently be near Him. In fact, Hebrews is telling us that is one of the primary applications to the reality of who Christ is and what he's done. And so we get this invitation, maybe even stronger than that, this pleading that we, that is, that is all of us, draw near to God through faith. So first we saw primary response, draw near to God through faith. Let's look at piece number two of our response. And that is that we respond to Jesus by holding fast to our hope. Verse 23, he says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. To hold on to our hope, I think, has this idea of spiritual perseverance, of pressing on in our walk with Christ. 
You see, this would contrast the warnings that have been coming up all throughout this book about falling away. In fact, there's one that comes right after this passage about walking away from all this Jesus stuff. But the call is to respond to the truth of Jesus by pressing on with hope. Now, by hope, we're talking about something very specific. Okay, the confession of our hope is what's actually mentioned in the text. And that's what we hold on to. It's not uh, an ethereal, warm, fuzzy notion of hope that you might read in a, a greeting card. This is genuine, authentic hope. It's, it's really the historic Christian truth that's been passed down to us about the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what we hold on to. And that gives us the hope, the kind of hope, that stands strong no matter what kind of pressures we feel. And no matter what we see going on right in front of us. So the plea is to hold fast... And it's a serious one, uh, because hope really is, it is serious business. In fact, it's been said that a man can live up to 40 days without food. Probably pretty rough, but people have made it. Uh, without water, it drops down to three days. Without air, it's only eight minutes. But without hope, it's one second. And it is through genuine hope that we press on Even when the pressure is on. It's the real genuine hope of Jesus Christ. And our our charge is to hold on for dear life to this hope that's being offered. But we can do so with confidence. In fact, that's emphasized a second time in this verse. It says we do so without wavering. We can hold on to it firmly. How's that possible? Well, as the text says, because he who promised is faithful. You see, the character of the promise maker has been proven time and time again. In fact, Hebrews itself makes a really big point out of this. If you were to go back and read chapter 6, highlighting God's faithfulness to his promises to Abraham as an illustration of his character. So Hebrews is reminding us that the promises that we are holding fast to, that we are finding hope in, are made by the God of Abraham of Isaac, of Jacob, the God who has proven himself faithful before and will be faithful again. Well, so far we've seen two of our responses. We respond and apply the truth of Jesus by drawing near in faith, by holding fast to our hope. And in verse 24 and 25, we get one one more application. He says, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So our final invitation is one to consider. That is to think carefully through, to have deep concern for, even imagine in our minds, what would it look like? As brothers and sisters in Christ, to encourage one another to love and good deeds. The image here is a a mutual provoking uh, that we think about how to move each other to action, to growth in our walk with Christ. And and the word there actually is, is pretty strong. In some translations, it's stimulate, spur on, motivate. Usually, the Bible uses it, uses it in the negative sense. Someone has the idea of poking the bear, you know. Yet our call here 
is to ask the question, how do we give each other a nudge, or maybe a shove, in our walk with Christ as a family? We're called to help each other live this thing out. And to do that well takes some thought. And the the author of Hebrews understood that. And so he calls us to consider. Now, out of this whole passage, I'm guessing if you've been around church for any amount of time, you're most familiar with that tiny little phrase in verse 25. It says, not forsaking the assemblies of ourselves together. If you've been around church, you know that's a staple go-to-church verse. And going to church is a great application. Uh, If you didn't know, I'm a big fan of going to church. But I think the text has a little more in mind than, than just showing up to a service. You see, verse 25 describes what verse 24, which is the focus, which is the point, should and shouldn't look like. The text is telling us that if we want to encourage one another to grow, then we actually have to be around each other. To live as a family. And if we want to stick with it, especially when the pressure is on, then we have to have relationships. You see, the Bible is working under this assumption that encouragement does not happen in in isolation. That there are assumed relationships here for these truths, these applications to play out. Even though some folks have already bailed. That's what that's saying in verse 25 in that phrase. That some people have succumbed to this pressure and they've walked away. They've stopped showing up. And probably gone back to the socially acceptable Jewish routines. Just what everyone else is doing and doesn't ruffle any feathers. But the text is saying that if we don't show up, and more than just showing up, if we don't live as a family, how can we be spurred on? Not to mention help other people grow in their walk with Christ. You see, healthy families, they spend time together. They build meaningful relationships, have hard conversations, they laugh, they cry, but they they do all these things together. You know, I love the quote by Kent Hughes. He's a well-known pastor and author out of Wheaton that kind of brings this all together. He says, on the most elementary level, you do not have to go to church to be a Christian. Now, that's saying it a little interestingly, but we agree. Showing up here is not what gets you into heaven. But listen how he continues. He says, you don't have to go home to be married either. But in both cases, if you do not, you'll have a pretty poor relationship. You see, spiritually, God has not designed us to thrive or really even survive on our own. In fact, the dominant illustration in the scriptures for the church is what I've been mentioning all morning. It's a family. And we see that majorly emphasized in this text. From the very first verse, he calls... His readers, brothers. He says we're in the household of God. We see these three community invitations. The final one of which is focusing on our relationships. Now there's one final phrase in this passage uh, that I think is worth noting. And that's that he adds on the end that we're to do all of this. It says all the more as the day draws near. Well, what is the day? Uh, Well, he's probably using this in a very big picture sense. That is the day or the time period when Jesus comes back and and he makes things right. A more technical way to say this, you could say it's eschatological motivation for us to live this stuff out. And that's pretty interesting to me, actually. 
when we start talking about the end times, people have a lot of different responses. Uh, some folks, they stockpile food. Uh, other people get the calendar out and try to pick a date. Others create really big charts. But I haven't heard too many people say, you know, Jesus is coming back. I better get more plugged into my church family. Yet the author of Hebrews is saying, as we get closer and closer to the culmination of God's plan for this earth, the reality of who Jesus is ought to compel us to walk with those who have the same faith, the same hope, the same love that we do. And with that, that's our text. The truth of Jesus Christ, verses 19 through 21, it invites us to live as a family, family of faith, of hope, and of love. It's verses 22 through 25. I think it's an invitation to come on in, to stay a while, and to make yourself at home. You see, those three commands, to faith, to hope, to love, those summarize our response to Christ. But in the, in the book of Hebrews, they also serve as a summary of the rest of the letter. You know, chapter 11 is the hall of faith. Uh, chapter 12 focuses on patient endurance, uh, just another way to say hope. And chapter 13, his very first command is one to love. It's faith, hope, and love. So again, we see in this passage, one sentence in Greek, the entire book of Hebrews. A summary looking back and then a summary of how we respond going forward. So as we finish our time together, I'd like to focus on that threefold picture that the author leaves us with. That we enter the family through faith, that we continue that life of faith with great hope, and that we do so as a family that loves one another. So today, in the spirit of the text, I have three challenges for us. First, I'd like to speak to anyone who, who maybe isn't yet in the family of God. And maybe the reality of who Christ is and, and what he's done is not something that you've yet drawn near to through faith. If that's where you find yourself, I'd encourage you to focus on our first few verses. Uh, that doctrinal section, the gospel truth in verses 19 through 21. You see, those verses describe some amazing spiritual realities that are offered to us through Christ. But they're only true for those who are right with God. So if you've never placed your, your faith, your trust, your dependence on the Lord Jesus Christ, then frankly, none of those realities apply. You see, without this saving faith, there is no confidence uh, there's no assurance, no cleansing. Those are only found in Jesus. See, the assumption of this book, and not just Hebrews, but the whole Bible, is that our God is, is so great, He is so holy, and that our sin problem is so big, that the only solution to making that right is Jesus Christ. And it is by the work that Jesus did, that, that we just studied, that we can be made right. And you can experience that by drawing near through faith. Now, if you're a believer today, this is, this is also great encouragement for us. Uh, this act of faith, of drawing near, is, is not a, just a one-time thing. We're offered a lifetime of nearness to God. And if you were with us last time I spoke, we, we looked at a whole, chapter, a whole chapter in Psalms that talks about how great the nearness of God is 
And that is something that we can experience through faith on a daily basis for a lifetime because of what Christ is offering us. Now, maybe you've entered the family of God, but you can relate to some of the pressures, the social pressures that are described uh, in this context. Again, I know we don't live in a, a Jewish society, but when family or friends or, or co-workers give us a hard time about our faith, or you feel that social pressure that sometimes it's even hard to put words to, but this pressure to conform to what a, a normal religious experience would be. When you experience that, that, the answer is the same then as it is now. And that's that we press on with the hope that only G, Jesus can give. You see, we cling to these promises that God's made. Uh, stepping forward each day with the genuine hope. I mean, it's real. Genuine hope that can be found through Christ. Uh, I'd encourage you to find a promise of God this week. Uh, one that applies, of course, to us. But find a promise... And read those verses. Meditate on that promise. Read other passages where God has proven himself faithful. And praise him for that. Hold fast to the confession of our hope. Now my guess is a large portion of us today, as as believers and, and members of a church family, will find ourselves focusing on those last few verses. Verses 24 through 25. And that emphasis on love is not without precedent. You know, in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, uh, Now these th- three things remain. Faith, hope, and love. Sounds familiar, right? <laughs> well, he goes on and he says, But the greatest of these is love. You see, love is, a premier, is the premier fruit of the Spirit. It's the first and greatest commandment. It's the fulfillment of the whole law, a characteristic of God himself, and it is by our love that the world knows who we are. And the final plea of our text today is that as a response to Jesus, we consider how to better live as a family. That considering how we together can nudge one another to love and good deeds. That is growth in our walk with Christ. What does that look like? Well, that is the question that the text is asking us to consider. That we consider how to do this. It seems to involve family time. And that's part of the reason we have services and groups and classes and, and serving teams. A meaningful time together centered on the Lord Jesus Christ. But more than just showing up, it's each of us individually considering, finding ways how we might challenge, encourage, help our brothers and sisters that as a family, we grow in our faith. And we do so with increased intentionality because Jesus is coming back. So I challenge us in the same way that this text does this morning. Let us, that is, that is all of us, draw near to God through faith. Press forward with great hope. And consider how to encourage one another to be more like Jesus. Because the truth of Jesus Christ invites us into a family of faith, of hope, and of love. So if you'd like to speak with someone this morning about the truth of, of Jesus Christ, or, or simply need some prayer, one of our leaders will be in our, our prayer room in the back, and, and we'd love for you to stop by. You're welcome there, and they'd love to spend some time and pray with you. Let's close in a word of prayer. 
Father, we're thankful for your word, and we're thankful for the access you give us through Jesus Christ. Uh, We pray that you'd help us to respond to this in the way that you'd have us to. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.